Second Chronicles chapter 7, verses 11 to 22, which tells us of what followed on the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem by Solomon back a thousand years before Christ. Second Chronicles 7, verses 11 to 22. We will then turn to our sermon text, Luke 21, 5 to 19. Again, the temple has just been dedicated by Solomon. The newly built Solomonic temple has just been built. Solomon has prayed his magnificent prayer at the dedication. There has been the sacrifice of tens of thousands of animals on that occasion. And the Spirit of God descended upon the place. The Shekinah glory descended on the place. And things were right. Things were right in Israel. Verse 11. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's palace and successfully completed all that he had planned on doing in the house of the Lord and in his palace. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house, that my name may be there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, If you walk before me as your father David walked, even to do according to all that I have commanded you, and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with your father David, saying, You shall not lack a man to be ruler in Israel. But if you turn away, and forsake my statutes and my commandments which I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will uproot you from my land which I have given you, and this house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. As for this house which was exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and say, Why has the Lord done thus to the land and to this house? And they will say, because they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them from the land of Egypt. And they adopted other gods and worshipped them and served them. 
Therefore, he has brought all this adversity on them. We now fast forward about a thousand years to Luke chapter 21, and it's been an eventful thousand years. You can read about it in the Old Testament. But we come to chapter 21 of the Gospel of Luke, beginning at verse 5. Jesus has just been teaching in the temple. We have seen and heard that teaching in weeks past, and now he and his disciples are on their way out. Verse 5. And while some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, he said, As for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. They questioned him, saying, Teacher, when therefore will these things happen, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See to it that you are not misled. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified. These things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. Then he continued by saying to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes, and in various places plagues and famines. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you'll be hated by all because of my name, yet not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Amen. May God add his blessing to this reading and our understanding of his word. The final rejection of God's Christ by Israel or by any nation cannot possibly end well for that nation. In the long run, it is simply impossible for the Christless nation to remain free and viable. This being the case, let me suggest to you that we may very properly disregard all of the bright ideas and the promises and the lies 
of our current set of secular politicians of whatever party, whatever party. We can disregard all their glowing testimonials of a more inclusive, pluralistic democracy. Because, dear ones, democracy is not the Christian's aim. It's not our mission as the people of God to spread democracy. Because it's not God's explicitly published mission. God's glorious kingdom, his kingdom, his everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, the increase of whose government and of peace will have no end, this kingdom has precisely one king and one law. God's king, Jesus, applying God's law to the faith and practice of his willing people, his covenant people, and blessing follows that nation that forsakes its, its repeatedly failed politics and follows him. Blessing follows the nation that follows Christ. The sober truth is that the Christless nation for its sin cannot stand in God's holy presence. David recognized this in the ninth psalm, as we've seen. Those nations can't stand. They fall into the pit they themselves have prepared. The Christless nation, therefore, cannot flourish or even long endure on the stage of world history. Now, as patient as the Lord our God has been to this point, as generous as he daily shows himself to be, scattering his good gifts to every nation on earth, every nation. The day is coming when he is going to examine carefully what use we've made of the greatest of all his gifts, his own dear son. What have the nations done with this Messiah he sent? In the fullness of time, this Messiah he sent to save us and to reign over us. What shall we do with the Lord Jesus Christ? As men and as nations. This is one of the very first matters facing us as we open the Bible's book of Psalms. The second psalm ends with this solemn warning. Now therefore, O kings... Show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So as for you kings and judges of the earth, David says in this psalm, as for you kings and judges of the earth, you civic leaders bearing whatever title it is you may bear, kiss the Son of God. Do him homage. Show the Son of God all due respect in your personal capacity, 
in your public capacity, in your political capacity. Obey him, serve him, honor him, reverent submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is the very essence of personal piety, of course, personal piety. But this isn't just a personal matter. In the final analysis, that submission, reverent, loving submission to the Lord Jesus Christ determines the rise and fall of nations. Now, among Gentile nations, human history is replete with examples of the fall, sooner or later, the fall of Christless nations. What, for instance, has become of the nation of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites, the Amorites? What's become of the great world empires of Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Macedonia, Rome? What's become of the indigenous, indigenous nations of our own North American continent? Whatever means God used to present the good news of Jesus Christ to them in their respective generations, those nations that have rejected him have fallen. Others like them are still slipping and falling today. In my own lifetime, the lifetime of some of you here, we've seen the disintegration and collapse of the once great Soviet Union back in the late 80s. The violent disintegration and fall of Yugoslavia in the 90s. The violent disintegration and fall of several nations of Africa. And we, the highly favored people of these United States, do well to remember the Bible's warning. Kiss the son, do him homage, lest he become angry, and you perish. You see, whatever the appearances may be, the threat to our own rebel country is very real. And we need to learn at every level to kiss the Son, to do Him homage, to love Him and serve Him. We do well to remember this for our own nation because far and away the most highly favored nation of all history, in all the history of nations, the most highly favored one was the nation of Israel. Moses recognized this from the very beginning, from that night of their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. He recognized this is something special. We are being formed as a nation, a special nation, a holy nation. And he made sure to drive that fact home to a new generation of Israelites gathered, finally, after 40 years, gathered on the threshold of the promised land. The people, of course, Miriam is gone, Aaron is gone. That whole first generation, except for Moses and, uh, and Joshua, except for Joshua and Caleb, that whole first generation are gone. So Moses is preaching to a new generation. 
They're ready to cross the Jordan. They're ready to go in and take possession. Look what he tells them in Deuteronomy 4, beginning at verse 5. Deuteronomy 4, beginning at verse 5. He preaches to them and he says, See, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them. For that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? There simply was no other nation on earth as richly privileged as the nation of Israel for all the centuries of her existence. The Apostle Paul sums up the unique national inheritance of his own countrymen in these words of Romans 9, beginning at verse 3. He speaks of his own kinsmen according to the flesh, that is Israel, who are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever. What nation was more highly privileged than Israel? But of course, with great privilege comes great responsibility. And Israel's highly favored situation among the nations was granted to her only so that she might fulfill her high calling and her solemn duty to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests. Now, what do you suppose that means? What is a kingdom of priests or what is a priestly nation? It means that Israel is to be a shining light. Israel is to be a spiritual beacon among all the nations of the earth. She's to be their guide to the glorious kingdom of God. And had she fulfilled her high international calling... Had she loved the Lord her God with all of her heart, soul, mind, and strength, had she loved her neighbor as herself, had she in these ways reflected the glory of God out into the world round about her, then the Gentile nations, you can be sure, would have been streaming to her and to the glorious God she served the nations round about would be saying, whatever Israel's got, we want some of that for ourselves. What a law they have in the law of Moses. What a king they have in the son of David. And some, in fact, did come, didn't they? You know your Old Testament. Some of them did come. A few Ruth the Moabitess, 
not the Israelite, the Moabitess, found blessing under God's law, even in the dark time of the judges, she did. The Queen of Sheba was left absolutely breathless at what she saw and heard of the glory of God during her visit there with Solomon. Naaman the leper was a Syrian, not Israelite, but a Syrian who found healing not in his home country, but here in Israel. Sadly, though, these were the notable exceptions to the rule. By and large, Israel as a nation spent her allotted time in the land, not standing out as a beacon of grace that she was called to be. She spent her time trying to fit in among the nations, wanting to be a nation just like all the other nations, wanting to intermarry with those other nations, wanting for themselves a king, just like the kings that all those other nations have wanting to form political and military alliances with them, and so turning her back on Christ and his law became her eventual undoing. And it is this final undoing of Israel as a nation that the Lord Jesus Christ announces in our passage today. He's left off teaching in the temple. Now he and his disciples, who remember, are country boys for the most part. They're country boys. They're making their way out of the city, out of the temple complex, and back to the Mount of Olives. Back in the direction of Bethany, outside the city to the east, where they spent their nights, typically. Whenever they were in Jerusalem, they would spend their nights in the Mount of Olives or in Bethany. So they're on their way out of this magnificent temple complex, and some of these country boys can't help but just gawk as they look around. They're just tourists. They're gawking at the architectural beauty of this place. You just don't find buildings like this back home in Capernaum. At which Jesus makes this startling announcement. As for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be one stone left upon another, which will not be torn down. Well, this isn't only very sobering to hear, it is frankly incredible to these young men. It's incredible. It's unbelievable. The historian Josephus was actually there when the Roman army under Titus breached the walls of Jerusalem and leveled the city 40 years later. And Josephus writes about temple foundation stones that measured 40 cubits. That is 60 feet long. A single stone. The individual stones of the temple buildings were massive, and then to circumnavigate the whole temple complex built of these stones took you on a trip over a mile long from starting point all the way around the temple complex back to where you started. It's a trip of over a mile. 
So he's given the disciples plenty to turn over in their minds before they reach the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley and up the slope of the Mount of Olives to the east, where at last they rest. And some of them come up to Jesus then as they're resting on the Mount of Olives and they ask him to elaborate on these things. The temple of God destroyed? Jerusalem, presumably leveled? Teacher, when therefore will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are going to take place? Both of which actually are very good questions, and we get all kinds of questions from the disciples, some of them silly, some of them very good. These are some very good questions they ask. First, when is this going to happen? They don't doubt that it's going to happen because he said it was going to happen. So the question is, when is this going to happen? First. And second, what should we be looking for as we prepare for the end of this magnificent temple and the end of the Old Testament age that that temple represents? I don't plan to take up each of the specific items the Lord Jesus mentions here. He lays them out for his disciples so everything's clear and straightforward. Here's what you can expect. But there are several points that I want you especially to notice today. First, I want you to notice that Jesus isn't here speaking about the end of human history. Here's where some Christians go astray. He is not here speaking about the end of human history. He's speaking about the coming end of that particular age. The end of the Old Testament age. Now, there's no doubt that for a thousand years, the Temple of Jerusalem was the ordinance of God and that it was absolutely magnificent. It was so first back in the days of Solomon. It was when it was later rebuilt after the Babylonian exile. It was even more so with the expansion and embellishments added by Herod the Great shortly before Jesus himself was born. Architecturally, the temple of God was beautiful, almost beyond words to describe. And the presence of God there to meet with his people made that place positively glorious. But that was then. And this is now. As long as the temple stood, as long as the temple stood, those who worshipped there worshipped as though the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. Which it could never actually do. The temple and the sacrifices that took place there served only as a type and shadow of the reality of our atonement secured by the blood of Jesus Christ. So for the 40 years that lay between the cross of Jesus Christ and the coming of the Romans to destroy Jerusalem, 
During those 40 years, the temple, for all its architectural beauty, was really just a dinosaur. The temple was a dinosaur. It was a museum piece. Worse than that, its continuance led people to think that the shadow of Levitical worship was the reality. So once the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ had gotten a foothold in the Roman world, which it did with astounding success from the 30s through the 60s AD, once it made inroads into the hearts of men across the Roman Empire, the shadow had to go. Jesus himself confirms the time span that he has in mind when he says in verse 32 of this chapter, we haven't gotten there yet, but in verse 32 of this chapter, he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. This generation will not pass away. Clearly then, the end of the age means not the end of the world, not the end of history, but the end of the Old Testament the decisive end of the Old Testament, the end of the old way of doing things. And many of those present to hear Jesus that day were going to live long enough to see it. What could the disciples expect to experience during that 40-year interim between the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and the destruction of the temple. What could they expect? They could expect a worsening of cultural, religious, and environmental conditions, even as the gospel was carried with great success to every corner of the civilized world. We read the Roman historians, Tacitus, Suetonius, Josephus, and others. The historians who wrote the official chronicles of that particular time and age. And it's all bad news. Virtually everything that those Roman historians wrote was bad news. It's the politics of intrigue and murder and the lust for power. It's wars and rumors of wars. It's self-promotion and generally everything the Lord Jesus spells out for us in advance here in these verses. That is the dark backdrop against which the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ shines. And a lot of bad things can happen in 40 years but even before those bad things get started, the earthquakes and the wars and rumors of wars and so forth that just accelerated throughout that 40-year period, apparently, even before they get started, Jesus tells his disciples, they're going to be coming for you. You specifically, my apostles, they'll be coming for you. Verse 12, but before all these other things, 
They will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. Well, don't Jesus' words here fairly sum up the apostolic experience during those years recorded for us in the book of Acts? There we find some of these very same men being hauled before the Jewish authorities, as were Peter and John in the fourth chapter of Acts, and all the apostles in the fifth chapter, and being hauled before the civil authorities, from Sergius Paulus, the proconsul of Crete, to the chief magistrates of Philippi, to the governors Felix and Festus, and ultimately to Caesar. Before each one of them, the apostles were given opportunity to bear testimony to the person and work of Jesus Christ, and so the gospel spread. The Lord's Olivet Discourse continues, and we'll look at the rest of it very carefully as it unfolds over the next couple of weeks. I want us to understand this Olivet Discourse. Because biblical eschatology, the study of the last things, probably trips up more sincere Berean-minded Christians than any other field of theological study. Eschatology confuses even the most sincere believer. But the Lord Jesus Christ gave us these things not to make us fearful, not to make us unsure. He's given us his word so that we can face the future together with absolute confidence in him who reigns over the unfolding of history. Absolute confidence in him who holds the future in his wise and loving and almighty hands. Amen. Let us pray. And now, our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would fill us with this Spirit-inspired confidence in the work of God in history. We do pray for our own nation that the gospel would take root here, that it would run and have success in the hearts of men of every class. We pray that the Lord Jesus Christ would be recognized as the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We pray that he would preside over what takes place in our own land, that we would learn from history, that we would not be falling into the pit that Christless nations prepare for themselves. Grant these things, we pray, in the mighty name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.